so what we're assuming there is we want the, the final blood sodium concentration to be the same as it is at the start of exercise. Of all those things we talked about before of why you want to take sodium in during exercise, that's really the only one that we have sort of a scientific justification of this is why you know testing your sodium losses and then prescribing a certain amount would be potentially useful. Hello and welcome to the Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Steph Gaskell. And I'm Alan McCubbin. We are both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each week we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask. It's the stuff you talk about during your training or might be after your training session at the cafe and what we aim to do is break it down, invite a guest expert or practitioner for part A and then we have an athlete or a coach to add their perspective in part B. Today's episode is 47A. How much sodium do I need to replace during exercise, which is a really common question. And we are lucky enough to be joined by none other than Alan McCubbin. What we're going to discuss today is why might sodium be important to replace during exercise? What are we trying to actually achieve with sodium replacement? And how much sodium do we then need? And how do we actually even figure this out? What factors determine if deliberate sodium replacement is important or not? So all really important questions that I know our listeners will be um, dying to hear the answers to. Before we get stuck into that, how are you going out? Yeah, I'm all right. Kids are back at school, finally. They were sick the last week of term, so it's been three and a half weeks, I think, that they've been home. So, yeah, good to get them back to school. We had some nice weather also this last week of school holidays, which has been nice. So, yeah, it's been all around good times, I think, and uh, heading into the uni lab tomorrow to get some frozen tubes of blood and send them off to pathology to get them analysed for that five-hour running study. Getting some of my blood too. Yeah, yeah, looking forward to getting those results back. Getting, yeah. Yeah, and then cracking into, I guess, finalising the paper and submitting it. Yep, that's right. Yep, mm-hmm. so that'll happen, well, between now and Christmas at some stage. And, yeah, I think it'll probably won't get published until the first half of next year, given how long the publishing process takes, but mm-hmm. that's all right. Um, yeah, but really looking forward to it. Yeah. And how about you, Steph? What have you been doing the last week or so? Been back in Melbourne, getting back into the rhythm of things? Getting back into the rhythm of things, yeah, enjoying the same as you, enjoying the the better weather that we have had and been spoilt with. Um, so, yeah, just uh, getting out on the mountain bike hour so maybe we can go out again one day to Listerfield. Yeah, we got a, um, a dog trailer just recently. I was going to say you're not the only one who's been out on the mountain bike. <laughs> yeah, we had um, little Cooper testing that out on the trailer and first of all he was a bit unsure but then soon enough he was pretty chilled and, and enjoying the the um, scenery, I guess. Um, we went down to, I think it's called Yuri, is it Yuri Woolock Station? It's that rail trail into Warburton. Oh, Worry Alec. That's it, thank you, yeah. Worry Alec, yep, yep. yep. So, yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. Otherwise, mm. in terms of work, um, marking a ton and, yeah, just trying to get my foot in, in the door in, in um, hopefully getting a uni job sometime soon. Mm. Yes. <laughs> ah, fun and games. Fun and games, fun and yep. games. <laughs> and you also had, we talked about it last week, Steph, you did a presentation I think at the end of last week, probably just after the podcast last week's episode came out, the Compete Academy. How did that go? Hmm. Yeah, that was really good. Um, it's it's great that Compete the Compete Academy do have those webinars where they're you know encouraging professional development for the um, sports 
practitioners and nutritionists that they have on board. So, yeah, it was really just walking through gastrointestinal symptoms in athletes, but how can practitioners, you know, work with athletes to try and help solve perhaps what is, you know, contributing to the symptoms and walking them through the exercise intervention assessment protocol, I guess, that we at Monash developed and then trying to, I guess, put that into a perspective for practitioners that won't have the ability to go into a lab and and test their athletes. So that can be quite, quite tricky. Mm, Yeah. Awesome. Mm. Social media shout outs, Al. Yeah, it's been a very quiet week on social media, Steph. I think that's partly because I've been so busy with kids and stuff, I haven't really had an opportunity to post on social media. So if you don't post, you don't get much back, which is fair (laughs) enough. So, yeah, haven't really had had much to talk about. Have you had any Mm. other feedback maybe when you've been uh, out riding Cooper around town? (laughs) um so just just had a email shot through with an athlete that I work with Lou who's a um endurance runner also does a bit of mountain biking as well and yeah so she just said thanks again for the podcast it's wonderful she gets to listen to that on her long runs and finds that really useful so that's great to hear yeah awesome yeah But otherwise, I think just a reminder that you can find us on social media at The Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Yeah, if you've got any questions, please shoot them through to us on social media and we'd love to help answer them. We've got a fair few now, Al, that we're probably going to take us to the best part of, is it the first half of next year? Almost, yeah, yeah. There's quite a few um, questions that have come through from listeners in the last probably five to ten weeks, really, which has been fantastic. It's great to have all those questions come through, uh, and a lot of them were things that we had already sort of had in the back of our mind as as things that we wanted to cover in the podcast anyway. So, yeah, it's great that sort of we're on the right track, I suppose, in terms of the the <laughs> ones that we come up with ourselves. But um, yeah, really looking forward to some of these ones. There's been some really great ones come through. And, yeah, in the process of organising a lot of them at the moment, which is exciting. All right. Well, let's get stuck into today's episode. Yeah, let's get to it. Our topic today, how much sodium do I need to replace during exercise? A really common question that we both get out. First of all, how did you first get interested in the area of sodium and endurance athletes, I guess? since I've known you, you've been interested in it. So, yeah, walk us through what got you started. Yeah, well, I guess if if I go back probably a decade or possibly even more to, you know, probably about 10, 2010, 2011, something like that, I started doing a lot of work with endurance athletes just as a private practitioner. And I'll never forget the first year that, that Ironman came to Melbourne. And I don't know if you... Obviously, you were probably in Adelaide at the time, Steph, so you might not have seen this effect, but um, certainly being here, I never wrote so many race plans in my life. Like all these people came out of the woodwork in Melbourne to do an Ironman that maybe wouldn't have travelled interstate previously to, to race Port Mac or um, over in WA, which were the only two Ironmans available in Australia at that time. And so when the new one opened up in Melbourne, all of these people wanted to do Ironman. And so I was just writing plan after plan after plan. And um, at that time, I developed this kind of spreadsheet, which had all the different sort of common sports nutrition products that were available at that time to help from, you know, speed up that planning process. Um, you know, Asker Yerkendrop talked about his core nutrition software a few weeks ago when he was on the podcast. And it was basically a primitive version of that in the spreadsheet. And, you know, I could put in you know, one of these gels and this much of that sports drink and that kind of thing and, and how many hours, say, the bike leg would take of a race and it would calculate all the carbs and the fluid they were getting per hour. And I added sodium in there because obviously if we think about what you take in during a race, you're generally taking in three things, carbohydrate, water and sodium um, and obviously small amounts of other things, but they're the kind of the big three. And so, you know, at that time, we had pretty good guidelines around carbohydrate. We could say, you know, we're aiming for this much carbohydrate. Um, While controversial, I guess there was different opinions around fluid, but there were opinions and guidelines around fluid. And so you could decide which one 
fit the the athlete best and and work with that. But then, you know, this spreadsheet I had was calculating all the sodium intake that the person would get from this combination of products. And it was always sitting there, but I never actually used it. It just sort of sat there and stared at me through the computer screen. And occasionally you'd get athletes, you know, when you screen share or show them if it was face-to-face, they'd go, oh, okay, well, what about the sodium? And it's like, well, we don't really know. There's no guidelines around how much sodium we should have during exercise. And so it always seemed odd to me that, you know, there was this focus on sodium. People talked about it. You could test the sodium content in your sweat. And yet there was not a single guideline that actually told us how much we should be replacing during exercise. There was kind of these vague statements like, you know, if you lose a lot of sodium during exercise, you should think about replacing it. But it didn't say how much was too much sodium to lose. It didn't say how much of it you should replace or in a lot of detail why either. So it got me sort of thinking. And then when I came to do a PhD in 2015, sort of at that stage, and, and I was in a bit of an unusual position that I got to actually choose my topic rather than having a project that I came onto. And so when when that happened, I sort of said, well, what, what do you want to do? And I thought about it and I thought, well, this sodium one is a big unanswered question. There's a huge amount of gaps in our knowledge. We really don't know how much sodium we do need or do we need it at all. Um, and there was also some other work looking at the impact of dietary sodium intake. So if you eat more sodium, do you then lose more sodium in your sweat? And that had been suggested by guys like Tim Noakes um, and quoting research that went all, all the way back to World War II looking at that. So I thought, oh, this is an interesting area. It hasn't been looked at for a long time. The The techniques that were used back then, you wouldn't get your papers published today. They wouldn't be considered valid techniques. And so I thought, well, that that's interesting as well. And so this whole sodium picture is you know, a big gap in our knowledge. Um, and one, you know, whenever there's a gap, it's going to get filled by something. And if it's not filled with science, it's going to be filled with whatever people want it to fill it. And so that can be athlete and coach anecdotes. It can be commercially driven messages. Um, and that's exactly what we see in sodium and electrolytes. Both of those um, really predominate the field in terms of what people are recommending and, and doing in terms of sodium and electrolyte use. So, yeah, that's sort of what got me interested in it. And then did a PhD looking at that impact of um you know, how our diet affects our sweat sodium losses, but at that same time got to do a systematic review to look at sodium intake or sodium replacement during exercise and performance. And then since then I've kind of carried on with looking a bit more at sodium needs. And I guess the more you delve into it, like you do in a PhD, the better you understand kind of the underlying science and, and biology going on, then you start to be able to ask better questions and then start to be able to conceptualise how you can answer those questions. And that's sort of the journey I've gone on and and really gone on it partly because no one else was. And so to me, it was like such a big area that no one seems interested in answering. Well, might might as well be me. And what a good person to do it. Um, So I guess before we ask how much sodium we need we first kind of need to briefly touch on what actually is sodium and why might it be important to replace it. So starting at the start, we often hear about sodium referred to under, I guess, the broader term electrolytes. What does this actually mean? Yeah, so electrolytes are basically substances that dissolve in a liquid like water and when they dissolve they dissociate into the two constituent parts so we think about this in terms of human biology we're generally thinking of things like salt sodium chloride and so sodium chloride is technically the electrolyte rather than just the sodium or just the chloride but we tend to think about the individual components as the electrolytes but when they dissociate into the individual sodium and chloride the sodium has a positive charge and the chloride has a negative charge. So that's, I guess, the thing with electrolytes is they can carry this charge with them. So all of them, when they dissolve, will have a charge. So they're usually salts, things like sodium chloride or potassium chloride or some combination. So sodium, potassium chloride are all minerals. And then we have all the other minerals that can be electrolytes as well. So things like magnesium, calcium, phosphate, and so forth. And then we have acids and bases as well, can also technically be electrolytes, but we're not going to worry about that for the purposes of today. 
So as I said, sodium is a positively charged ion when it's dissolved in, in water in our body, and it is a mineral. So we get it when we think about vitamins and minerals, it's one of the minerals. Now, the location of that sodium, when it dissolves in water, obviously it's going to move around within the water of the body. And the water of the body we can divide into sort of three key fluid compartments. So we have the fluid inside our cells, what we call the intracellular fluid. We then have the water that's on the outside of our cells, which is called our extracellular fluid. And the extracellular fluid we can break into two parts. So one is our blood volume or our intravascular fluid, so basically the blood within our arteries and veins and capillaries, and the what we call the interstitial fluid, which is the fluid that's outside of our vascular system but is not inside our cells. It sort of sits in between the two and surrounds the cells. And how much of these do we have in the various body compartments? Yeah, so if we think about sodium in particular, and that's the one we're going to focus on, obviously, being the, the topic of this podcast, we have about 1,000 milligrams of sodium for every kilo of our body weight. Now, it's slightly different from person to person, but it's roughly about that. So a 70 kilo person has about 70,000 milligrams of sodium within their body. Now, about 50% of all of that sodium sits in these extracellular fluid compartments, so within the bloodstream and the interstitial fluid. And only a very small amount sits inside our cells. It's only about 5% of all the sodium. So how is it that the sodium stays on one side of the cell, on the outside, but doesn't get to the inside? Well, it's because the, there's a little pump on the membrane of all the cells in our body that's constantly kicking out the sodium and bringing potassium in. So potassium is the opposite. It's the vast majority of it is inside our cells and hardly any on the outside of our cells. And that's really important, the balance between those two, because it helps determine how water shifts between the inside and the outside of the cells. And obviously we'll get into that later in terms of what the the significance of that is. The remaining 45-ish percent of sodium within the human body is bound up in structures in a way that we call it osmotically inactive. And we'll talk about osmolality shortly and, and what that means. But osmotically inactive means that basically it no longer holds its charge and therefore has its influence on water in the way it does when it's dissolved within a fluid. So in this case, you've got sodium that is bound to other structures and proteins and things within the body. So some of that sodium is bound within the minerals in our bone. So obviously we tend to think of calcium as the main bone mineral, and it is. It's far more calcium than it is sodium, but there is a little bit of sodium within our bones as well. But there's also sodium bound to other structures within the body, and that includes on the, the inner lining of our blood vessels, but also in our muscles and also bound in these protein structures within our skin. And it seems to be particularly the ones in the skin that can actually hoover up excess sodium and then release it back into the blood at various times for various reasons. And there have been suggestions in the past that that, that will actually mean that you don't need to consume sodium during exercise because you can release this sodium back into the blood to stop you developing hyponatremia. But what we now understand about this sodium and its binding within the skin is that it's bound to these structures and it's released to regulate volume rather than osmolality or the sodium concentration. It's more around how the body controls the amount of water in the body and we'll talk about that shortly in terms of how that's regulated and the significance of that. Yeah and back in episode 10a you briefly mentioned what the need for sodium is during endurance exercise can we i guess just quickly recap that before we start looking into actually how much we need yeah so i guess firstly we need to understand biologically what sodium does within the body and then that gives us a bit of a sense of you know why it might be useful to replace during exercise so I guess the first thing is we know that 50%, roughly 50% of all the sodium in our body exists in that extracellular fluid, so in the blood and the interstitial fluid. And that's important because it is by far the predominant electrolyte in the extracellular fluid. And so it has the biggest influence on the overall osmolality of our blood. Now, osmolality is basically just the number of particles dissolved within the solution, in this case, water. But our body uses osmolality to regulate a whole bunch of stuff. So if you think about, you know, we've got a certain amount of sodium within our blood and obviously a certain amount of water that it's dissolved in. 
So we can manipulate those two things up and down, and that happens for, for various reasons, either at rest or during exercise. So if we eat a whole bunch of salt in a salty meal without any water, then we're adding salt but not water to the blood. So our blood sodium concentration is going to go up and our osmolality is going to go up as well. The other reason that the osmolality would go up is if we're sweating during exercise and not replacing any water or sodium. So if we start exercising and doing a whole bunch of sweating, we're losing water and we're losing sodium, but the body has a mechanism to try and conserve some of the sodium but not the water because the water needs to go out to evaporate off and cool our body down. But because we save some of the sodium from the, the initial sweat that the body produces in the sweat glands, it means that overall, yes, we lose water and sodium, but we lose more water in proportion to the sodium that we lose. And so if you think about the blood sodium concentration, it is inevitably going to go up when we sweat. Even though we're losing sodium, we're losing even more water compared to sodium. And so the osmolality is going to go up. And when the osmolality goes up, it makes us thirsty. We want to drink more, which is obviously going to bring water into the body to help from a hydration point of view and also to bring that osmolality back down to normal again. And it also signals to the kidneys to conserve water so we don't produce as much urine in terms of the volume of the fluid in the urine. And so you can see that those two things are important for managing hydration in the body and the total amount of water within our body. So from an osmolality point of view, I guess that's one of the biggest potential uses of sodium replacement during exercise is to manage this osmolality. Now, I said before that osmolality is going to go up as we exercise and if we don't eat or drink anything. So in that case, if you were consuming sodium, you just imagine you just took salt capsules and didn't have any fluid, the osmolality would go up even higher and there's no real benefit to that. It'll just make us more thirsty, but if we don't have the water and we don't drink it, what's the point? Uh, but once we start adding fluid into that mix, then the sodium helps to balance the fluid that we drink. So we're bringing our osmolality back down to where we want it to be, but we're not bringing it down too low where we don't want it to be. The other thing that we need to think about with sodium during exercise is the osmolality and the sodium-potassium balance works in terms of the movement of water between the inside and the outside of the cells. Now, I'm not going to go into detail here about that because we talked about that on our podcast about exercise-associated hyponatremia, which I believe off the top of my head was episode 18. So if you're interested in that, you can go back and, and have a listen to that. But I guess the essential thing, if we think about why you would then want to replace sodium during exercise, is it allows you to drink more fluid without dropping your sodium concentration or your osmolality too low. So that's potentially one reason. The other reason that athletes commonly think about is cramping, obviously. And I guess the rationale traditionally around that has been that um, sodium is also involved in muscle contraction and it's also involved in the way that nerves signal to each other. And so obviously when you have the nervous system controlling muscle contraction, you put those two things together and there's sodium involved, people naturally conclude that you know there's a role for sodium in cramping there. But as we talked about with uh, Professor Kevin Miller a few weeks ago on the podcast around exercise-associated muscle cramping, we don't really have any good evidence that losing sodium from the body per se causes any issues with these things that result in muscle cramping. It's probably, if there is any effect of sodium, it's more likely to be its interaction with water. So um, the, the effect on osmolality and then the effect that osmolality has on both the total volume of water in our body, but also how much water and where it sits between the inside and the outside of our cells. And we know with cramping, it's a very complex phenomenon. There's a whole bunch of different contributing factors and sodium plays just one very small role in that, if, if at all. Now, the other reasons that people often cite for consuming sodium during exercise uh, are less so about you know, what's going on in the blood. So one might be because it makes our food and drinks taste better and so we're more likely to want to consume more of them. So we get more carbohydrate in, we get more fluid in, so we have better hydration, we have better fueling during exercise. And so that's probably a legitimate reason. I guess the one thing you'd say there is that the amount of sodium that you need to achieve that is based on personal preference. It's got nothing to do with how much sodium you're losing during exercise because it's all about taste and flavor, not about you know balancing losses within the body per se. And then the final one, I guess if we think about that osmolality again, when it goes up, 
that's going to make us more thirsty. And so that, again, will drive more fluid intake during exercise. So if our um, blood sodium concentration and therefore the osmolality drops, we're going to be less thirsty and we're going to want to drink less. So by having a bit more salt and deliberately inching that osmolality up a little bit or just maintaining it without dropping it, it's more likely to make you want to drink more during exercise. So they're the common reasons that people give for consuming sodium. And sorry, the last one I almost forgot is actually fluid absorption from the gut. So there's a suggestion that, you know, we add sodium to our drinks because it actually makes the, the water in the drinks absorb more rapidly from the gut into our bloodstream. Um, the research that looks at this when you look across the entire gastrointestinal tract suggests that it makes a difference in some parts of the GI tract, makes no difference in other parts of the GI tract, and the overall effect is probably so small that it's not worth worrying about. And so what's the evidence that actually any of these effects translate into benefits in relation to performance? Yeah, not much, to be honest. Um, as part of my PhD, I actually did a little sort of side project during that time and, and actually looked at doing a systematic review where I sort of tried to find every study that had ever been published looking at sodium replacement during exercise and endurance exercise performance. And by the time we eliminated a few for various reasons, we were left with only really five studies that had looked at this. And what we found when we looked at those five studies is there were potential methodological issues with all of them. For example, none of the studies were done in hot weather. I think the highest temperature in any of them was about 23 or 24 degrees Celsius. And so we don't really have an impression of you know, what happens in the hotter weather. The second thing is that there was a whole bunch of other issues. In one study, for example, um, gave them so much water to drink during the study that they actually developed hyponatremia in about half the participants. Um, in, I think it was the same study, actually, they tested them outdoors on a running track on two different days. And one day it got as low as 2 degrees Celsius and one day as high as 21 degrees Celsius. And so you can imagine any differences in performance are going to be probably more due to the weather than they are due to the, the sodium in the the fluids or the things that they were consuming. Uh, and then finally, not one of these studies and, and literally no study I've ever seen to date has actually measured people's sodium losses beforehand and then personalised the sodium replacement to their individual needs, which is you know what the industry commonly advocates, but it's literally never been done in a research study. So they just give arbitrary amounts of sodium. So from those five studies, only one of them showed a potential improvement in performance and that was giving salt capsules or placebo capsules to competitors during a half Ironman, so an actual race. And I guess the issue there is that there's so many things that could go right or wrong on race day for people, and it's not the same people doing the same study twice, so they're not acting as their own controls. So there's so many things that could influence performance in that kind of scenario. You know, a bad transition here, a drop water bottle there, um, you know, so many different things. I'm not sure that I really trust that result particularly much. And certainly I don't think it's enough just that one study on its own to draw conclusions from. And the other four studies didn't show any difference from sodium replacement and performance. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this gets us, I guess, now to the modelling study that you've mentioned a few times that our listeners will be aware of um, in past episodes. So this is all kind of finished and published now, I believe. So I guess, firstly, what was this study all about? Yeah, so this study was all about trying to work out how much sodium is actually required to replace during exercise to maintain a stable blood sodium concentration. Because if we think back before to all those reasons that you might want to take sodium during exercise, they were either nothing to do with sweat losses like taste preferences, or they were to do with the interactions between sodium and water in the body. And so if we can balance and maintain a constant or a stable blood sodium concentration and therefore osmolality, that's probably going to be the main thing that's important. And obviously then the hydration is about how much fluid you replace or you don't replace. And that's kind of a, a separate issue. And we've covered that back in episode 3A on the podcast with Dr. Lewis James. So I guess that was the, the key thing there. We, we don't need to think about sodium as like this thing that runs out and when we get a big enough deficit, something bad happens because that's not really how it works. It's about that concentration and that osmolality and the interaction between sodium and water. So I guess the, the background to this modelling study is there was a paper published back in 2008 
that looked at a, an equation that predicts blood sodium concentration at the end of a period of time based on what it was at the start and all the things that happen in between in terms of fluid gains and losses from drinking or going to the toilet or sweating and sodium intake or loss in terms of food and fluids that you eat or intravenously have you know saline or something in a hospital setting and then what you might lose through urine and so um, sweat losses and so that model or that equation was originally developed for clinical medicine for you know intravenous fluid delivery in acute hospital wards and things like that but this 2008 paper validated that model as being pretty good at predicting the final um, blood sodium concentration at the end of exercise after two hours of running in the heat on a treadmill given different types of um, or different amounts of fluid and sodium that were being replaced during that two hours. Now, the original study was trying to predict what the final um, blood sodium concentration is or would be. But in our case, we are aiming for the final blood sodium concentration to be the same as it was at the start. And so we can flip this equation around like any other mathematical equation and change the bit that we're solving you know, before the equal sign in the equation. So in this case, I flipped that around. So the thing that was solving was the amount of sodium intake. And so we're basically now saying, well, given the fluid intakes and losses that we're predicting, given the um, sodium loss that we're expecting through sweat, uh, potassium's involved in here, but we won't complicate that for now. And given the um, starting blood sodium concentration, how much sodium is required so that the final sodium concentration ends up being the same as what it was at the start. And so by doing that, and rearranging the equation, you could then use it to predict the sodium requirement as opposed to the final sodium concentration in the blood. So that's basically the, the study in a nutshell and, and what it was trying to achieve. Yeah, cool. Um, and so um, what did you actually find from writing all of that up? Did you get surprised by any of it? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it was certainly new to me in terms of doing that modelling process. It wasn't something I'd sort of done before. And um, I'd run a few scenarios through that. So I looked at a soccer match, an elite marathon runner, and then a 100-mile ultra marathon runner to look at, you know, sort of the impact of different sweat rates and different durations of exercise as well and, and put those through the model and see what was going to happen, basically. Um and I did that because I originally started off, you know, playing around with this equation just as a bit of a thought experiment based on some of the stuff I was seeing in the lab. And and then, you know, the Sports Dietitians Australia Conference came up last year and I thought, oh, you know, it might be interesting just to put some practical scenarios in and, and put that in as an abstract for the conference. And when I did and the abstract went up, I started getting messages on my phone from people saying, oh, this is great. You know, when are you going to publish it? Um, the abstract won the the best research abstract at the conference and all of a sudden I'm like oh okay well I probably should you know do something about that and publish it so I did a bit more modeling on this and, and took a bit of a deeper dive into it so as I said you know we're trying to work out what is the sodium requirement given all the fluid intakes and losses and given the sodium losses um, that we're predicting these people have in different scenarios so when you solve the equation, it's just in milligrams or millimoles of sodium over you know, the total duration of exercise. So you can divide that by the number of hours and you get you know, the milligrams per hour that you need to replace. Or you could divide that by the litres of fluid that you're drinking in the model and get you know, the milligrams of sodium per litre of fluid that you're going to drink as well. But what I then did when I graphed it is I flipped it around and said, well, how much sodium is it telling me that I need as a percentage of the sodium that I'm losing during exercise through my sweat? And so then I graphed it in terms of you know, how much sodium do I need to replace as a percentage of my losses. And when I graphed it that way, I got some really interesting patterns starting to emerge in the data that made things sort of predictable in a lot of ways and, and something that we could use sort of from a practical perspective. Um, and what was interesting is when you did it that way, so I looked at fluid intake as a percentage of sweat losses. So, you know, you sweat one litre an hour and you drink 800 mils an hour. So you're replacing 80% of your sweat losses. So you can go, you know, from 0% all the way up to 100% in 10% increments. And then look at the different sweat sodium concentrations that then lead people to lose more or less sodium in their sweat as well. And so when I put all of that together, what I found was that the body weight of the athlete made no difference in percentage terms 
uh, for how much sodium you needed to replace. The sweat rate made no difference when you looked at it in percentage terms. The starting blood sodium concentration made a negligible difference. There was a tiny bit, but it, it wasn't really uh, particularly significant. And the duration of exercise didn't make a difference in terms of the percentage of sodium that had to be replaced in that particular model. So there was these really interesting patterns there that kind of discounted a lot of things that you traditionally think about. So that's not to say that someone with a higher sweat rate doesn't need more sodium, but when you put it in percentage terms, it's the same percentage of your loss. So if I lose a lot of sodium and you, Steph, lose very little sodium during exercise, you know, 50% of my loss is going to be a lot more than 50% of your loss, but it's still 50%. So it just makes it easier to describe and come up with some sort of consistent recommendations or guidelines um, by doing it in percentage terms. So in terms of, you know, what are the things that actually did influence the amount of sodium or the percentage of your losses that you needed replacing? Well, it was really only two things. The first one was the sweat sodium concentration, which you would traditionally think of. So the more sodium you lose per liter of sweat. And the second one was actually what we call fluid turnover. So it wasn't about your sweat rate, how much sweat you lost. It was about how much of your sweat fluid losses you replaced in percentage terms. So did you drink to replace 50% of your sweat losses, 70% of your sweat losses, 80%, you know, whatever it is. And so basically the, the higher that got towards 100%, the more sodium you actually needed to replace. And interestingly, it wasn't until you replace more than about 70 to 80% of your fluid losses that you really have a requirement to replace any sodium during exercise. And that comes back to what I was saying before is that when we sweat and we don't drink anything during exercise, our blood sodium concentration goes up, not down. And so if our blood sodium concentration is going up, consuming more sodium is just going to make it go up even more or even quicker. So it seems to be that around that 70 to 80% mark is kind of the tipping point where you go from the blood sodium concentration going up during exercise to where you're drinking enough fluid, enough water that you're going to start to dilute and have the blood sodium concentration start to go down again. And so once it starts going down again, then having sodium is going to even it out and stop it going down. Now, if you're drinking more than 100% of your sweat losses, you're over drinking, then probably that's not going to save you. And we know that in people with hyponatremia, you know, if you're over drinking, you're going to end up with the symptoms of exercise associated hyponatremia, whether you take sodium or not. But at the end of the day, no one, there's no one that recommends anyone drinks more than 100% of their sweat losses anyway. So I guess the key thing here is that it's that that area between 70% replacement and 100% replacement where the sodium is necessary, below that not really necessary, and then the sweat sodium concentration just moves up and down that tipping point. So the higher the sweat sodium concentration, the, the lower that tipping point is, you know, 65, 70-ish percent, whereas if you have a very low sweat sodium concentration, then it's up more around the 80 to 90% fluid replacement before you actually need to consume any sodium to, to level things out. Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, and so how does this then relate back then to the reasons why someone might want to replace sodium during exercise? Is this a health thing or a performance thing? It's potentially a little bit of both, but I guess we need to start to think about, well, what are the situations where actually replacing, you know, 70 to 80% of your sweat fluid losses is actually important or necessary? And generally, it's in the longer events. And that's where that modeling, you know, the soccer match, the marathon and the ultra really became useful because you could see that as the duration increased, it didn't change the amount of sodium you need to replace if the percentage of fluid replacement stayed the same. But the point is that as you increase the duration of exercise, you need to replace a higher proportion. You need to get closer to that 100% fluid replacement in order to keep yourself from being severely dehydrated. So if you think about this uh, and that concept of fluid turnover I talked about before, you know, if you're doing the ultra marathon, you might sweat out 20 liters of sweat over, you know, the entire 100 mile ultra. And if you want to finish with a, you know, a two liter fluid deficit, you need to drink 18 liters of fluid during that event. So there you've had to replace 90% of your sweat losses in order to maintain that two kilo fluid deficit. Whereas if you go out and run a half marathon and you sweat two liters over the half marathon, you can drink literally nothing and still end up with a two kilo fluid deficit. So in one case, you've replaced 0% of your 
fluid losses. In the other case, you've replaced 90%. So the impact that that has on your sweat sodium concentration is completely different. And therefore, the sodium requirement is going to be completely different as well. So coming back to your question, you know, is it a health thing? Is it a performance thing? Well, I guess it's only relevant for a start in those ultra distance events, probably at least four hours plus, but uh, in a lot of cases, probably 10 hours plus really. So in those cases, uh, that's where you're likely to actually want, need, and be able to drink, you know, 70% plus of your fluid losses back again. And in those cases, I guess if we're thinking about it, if it's a performance issue, if it prevents us becoming significantly dehydrated, it might be. The problem is we don't really have a good grasp on, you know, what level of dehydration negatively impacts on performance, particularly for ultra distance events. You know, all the studies are generally in exercise of less than two hours duration. So how we extrapolate extrapolate that out to exercise of 20 hours duration, we don't really know. And you know, there has been, I know there's an abstract that's been published for a study where they got people to ride for five hours and then do a time trial at the end. But again, the time trial was 15 minutes, like as fast as you could go in about 15 minutes. So that intensity isn't the intensity you're going to sustain over an Ironman or an ultra marathon or a 24-hour mountain bike race. It's, it's higher intensity than that. So whether that actually applies to, you know, essentially a 20-hour time trial, we just don't know. So for those ultra distance events, I think there's a theoretical suggestion that it might be beneficial for performance simply because you can maintain better hydration status without risking hyponatremia. So again, we're not suggesting that anyone drinks more than 100% of their fluid losses, but once you get to those longer durations and you start to get up to sort of 70% replacement, 80%, 90% replacement, that's when, you know, if you're not having any sodium, two things are going to happen. Either you have to drink less to maintain your osmolality, and so you're going to become more dehydrated, or you're going to start to drop your blood sodium and potentially risk developing hyponatremia. So that's where it seems to be. And I guess that, you know, that kind of answers the, the health side of it as well, is I guess around that hyponatremia risk on one end of the scale, and then, you know, severe dehydration risk at the other end of the scale. Because if you don't you know, if you're replacing water and no sodium, then you have to make a choice. Am I going to run a lower water volume, drink less water to maintain a steady osmolality? Or am I going to take sodium to maintain the osmolality without dropping the sodium at the other end? And so, yeah, I think those ultra endurance events there theoretically would be a benefit both to health and performance, but it's very difficult, almost impossible to, to study. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, and so um, if we should think about sodium replacement in relation to fluid replacement, what comes first from a planning perspective and how does this fit with a drink to thirst approach to hydration? Yeah. So I guess the first thing I'd say here is if you are an athlete that doesn't sort of train or race, you know, much more than four hour durations at a time, then this is probably not relevant to you and you don't need to, to worry about going out and quantifying your sodium losses and then trying to calculate percentages and all that kind of stuff. So if that's the case, you know, just season to taste, you know, choose your sodium in your foods and drinks based on taste preferences and what encourages you to eat and drink an appropriate amount. So as we said before, that's the other reason that you might want to consume sodium, but it's got nothing to do with sweat losses and, you know, having a specific milligram amount to replace during exercise. But assuming that you are doing those sort of longer durations of exercise, the next thing I'd look at is, well, what is the chances that you can actually achieve 70% or more fluid replacement? So the interesting thing here is you've got to think about not only the, the amount of fluid to drink, but the practicalities of doing that. So if your sweat rate creeps up over more than about 1.8 litres an hour, and generally that doesn't tend to happen a lot in the ultra distance events, it's going to be in the shorter higher intensity events where you generate more body heat but in extreme circumstances it might but the reality is if your sweat rate is much above 1.8 liters an hour if you think about what 70 percent of 1.8 liters an hour is you know it's around that 1.4 liters an hour how many people can actually access drink and tolerate drinking 1.4 liters an hour every single hour for you know 5, 10, 15, 20 hours of exercise, not many people. So from that perspective, even though there might be a theoretical benefit from it, practically it's probably pretty unrealistic. So the first thing I'd say is if you're doing sort of ultra-distance stuff, 
and your sweat rate is less than 1.8 litres an hour, which is most people, then it's about, okay, well, what is my sweat loss and what is realistic to replace? There's obviously different ways of, of figuring that out. We're not going to go into that in detail now. If you want to look at you know, fluid balance, then you can go back to episode 3A with Dr. Lewis James. But assuming that we're aiming for you know, finishing exercise with maybe a 2% or a 3% um, body mass deficit as fluid, then, you know, and, and that's controversial where you draw that line, but let's just use 3% as an example for now. It doesn't really matter what that level is for this purpose. So then you go away and go, well, what is my typical sweat rate during my event? And then you go, okay, well, my typical sweat rate is maybe, let's just say a litre an hour, nice easy round number. And then you say, okay, well, I'm going to lose a litre an hour I want to finish my exercise with no more than a say, let's say two kilo deficit. Again, using that example from before, then depending on how long I exercise for, depends on how much fluid I need to drink. So I end up with a two kilo deficit or less at the end. So once you work that out, you can say, okay, well, the amount of fluid I need to drink to stay within that two kilo deficit is 50% of my sweat losses or 60% or 90% of my, you know, whatever it is. From there, if it's greater than 70%, that's when you might proceed to doing sweat sodium testing. So unless all of those things happen and all those ducks line up, so ultra-endurance exercise, sweat rate less than 1.8 litres an hour, and possible and beneficial to replace more than 70% of your sweat fluid losses, unless those three things happen, there's really no point in doing sweat sodium testing because it's not going to add any value to you. But if you do tick those three boxes, that's when you go and do a sweat test and you work out what my sweat sodium losses are going to be. We know that that's only ever a ballpark figure. We know that putting a patch on an arm, that result doesn't reflect the whole body and you've got to adjust for that. And we talked about that back in episode 10A. If you're not sure, you can go back and listen to that one. But assuming we get then an estimation of our whole body sweat sodium concentration, because it's only ever a ballpark, I tend to break it into low, medium and high. So low would be less than probably about 35 millimoles per litre. Medium would be maybe 35 up to about 55 millimoles per litre. And then high would be sort of above 55. You could make different cutoffs. You could argue maybe 40 and 60 of those cutoffs. I don't think it matters too much in the scheme of things. But I guess if you are in that low band, then really, unless you're drinking more than 90% of your sweat losses back again, really the amount of salt you need or sodium you need is so small that it's not even worth, you know, quantifying it and planning out a specific amount just you know if you've got a bit of salt in your food and drinks that'll cover you anyway if you're in that medium category so your sweat sodium concentration for the whole body estimate is between sort of that 35 to maybe 55 millimoles per liter then probably aiming to replace maybe sort of 30 to 50 percent of your sodium losses should balance out the water replacement that you're having and then if your sweat sodium concentration is very high, so above about 55 millimoles per litre, and that is high for a whole body estimate, not necessarily for a, a single patch site, um, then you may be looking at sort of 50 to 70% sodium replacement. And it's only if you combine that really high sweat sodium concentration with a really aggressive fluid replacement, maybe 90% replacement, that you might creep up to sort of 80, 85% sodium replacement. But there's no situation really where 100% sodium replacement is required. It's going to be somewhere in that band of kind of 30 to 70% for the vast majority of people. And so if you don't or you can't access sweat sodium testing, but you want to sort of figure it out, I guess if you perceive yourself to be a saltier sweater, maybe aim to replace 60 to 70% of your sodium losses, although it's hard to know exactly what they'll be if you don't test. Um, or if you're down at the lower end, um, you can probably just season to taste and, and not worry too much about it. So how do listeners take the findings of this study and use it to help them work out how much sodium they need to replace? Because obviously this is potentially relevant to the ultra-endurance athletes out there. Yeah, it's an interesting question and trying to make that practical is really tricky and it's something that I've been trying to get my head around ever since I did this kind of research and it's a bit of a chicken and egg question you know do you target a specific amount of sodium and then drink to thirst and hope that you know if you're not drinking enough the sodium kind of makes you more thirsty and drags your fluid intake up a little bit or do you plan to drink a certain amount of fluid during exercise and then plan the sodium around the amount that you're planning to drink 
But again, that has the issue of, you know, if you stick to a rigid fluid intake plan, then you could end up, you know, either very under or overhydrated if the day doesn't work out the way you expect it to in terms of weather or pacing and, and things like that. So it is a little bit tricky. I guess what I would probably tend to do is try and get an estimate of how much fluid you expect to drink during exercise. And again, working out how much that is will depend on, you know, your sweat rate um, and what's practical to carry and tolerate and all those kind of things. So, yeah, if, if you think that you are going to replace more than 70% of your fluid losses during the training session or the race, uh, and you can quantify what that equals, let's go with 700 mils an hour of fluid intake. So the 70% replacement there. And so then you go, okay, well, that's how much I plan to drink. I may not actually drink that much on the day. Like I might get more thirsty and drink more of it, it becomes hotter than I expect, or I might drink less than that if it ends up being cooler or I just don't get access to that fluid. So should I adjust the sodium up and down on the fly, that's going to be very difficult to do. So I'd be tempted to sort of look at how much fluid you expect to drink, base the sodium replacement on that. So again, saying, well, if I expect to drink more than 70% of my fluid losses, then sodium replacement is relevant. And based on my sweat sodium concentration, that value will be, say, around the 50% mark replacement. So then trying to calculate out from your sweat sodium test, you know, what is my sodium loss in milligrams per hour? What's 50% of that? And that's the amount that I'm going to take. And so you're probably going to end up with a fixed sodium intake and then your fluid is going to go up and down according to thirst. But if it starts to fall a bit too low, that sodium will drive you to drink a little bit more, which is probably helpful in some cases if you're tending to underdo things on the hydration side. If you tend to be someone who's going to be overhydrated, well, you're not having too much sodium that it's driving you to overdrink either. So, yeah, probably fixing the sodium and allowing the fluid to go up and down according to thirst and how you're feeling on the day is probably the way I would go about it. And does it matter if sodium comes in capsule form, gels, drinks or food? Um, not as far as we're aware. Um, I guess it's more thinking about what's the easiest one for you to control the amount of sodium you're getting if you're going to go for this specific sort of targeted strategy. So in some cases that will be using things like tablets or capsules just because it's simple and you get a known amount um, and it's easy to get that in and know that you've got it in. Obviously, if you're having it from fluids and the amount of fluid that you drink is going to vary depending on what's going on, in, in some ways you can argue that's a good thing because the more fluid you drink, the more sodium you'll get, the less you know, the other way around. Um, but it's hard to know exactly what you're getting and it's going to be a bit more variable. But in terms of physically, does the, the form of sodium matter, whether it's in foods, drinks, capsules or tablets? No, it, as far as we're aware, it doesn't make a difference. Mm, yep. And what about sodium chloride? So regular salt, as we tend to know it as, um, compared to sodium citrate that is used, as you've mentioned, in many sports nutrition products these days? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question and an unanswered one. So I mentioned before that, you know, sodium and chloride tend to occur together in nature, but also our bodies tend to regulate them together. So, you know, they both exist in the extracellular fluid. Our sweat glands regulate the amount of both of them together and the kidneys the same. So it's an interesting one because if you go and take sodium citrate in products during exercise and you're replacing a big sodium loss, but you're not replacing a big chloride loss, what difference does that make? Is there any implications of that? And we simply don't know. So it is something I'd like to research one day. If I ever get the chance and the dollars to do it, uh, I'd love to sit down and do a sodium uh, chloride versus sodium citrate study. So at this stage, we don't have any evidence to guide us one way or the other. Logically, sodium chloride makes more sense, but we don't have any evidence to say it's actually going to make much difference. And the reason that sodium citrate is usually used in products is because it improves the flavor. The chloride can be quite harsh. So, yeah, that might be beneficial to have citrate. <laughs> yep. Um, so summing up now, what has your research added to our knowledge that we didn't previously know? Yeah, look, I don't think it's added anything new in terms of knowledge necessarily, but I think what it's done is looked at it in a different way. So thinking about sodium replacement as a percentage of the loss in the context of the fluid. So I think traditionally what most people have done is they've tried to work out the sodium loss and then 
tried to work out, okay, well, how much sodium should I take or replace during exercise based on the sodium loss with no thought of what the fluid loss or intake is going to be. So it's completely independent of the water turnover. So what we've seen here is that the goal during exercise is to try and maintain a stable osmolality and therefore sodium concentration. We do that by consuming a certain amount of sodium in relationship to the amount of water that's coming in and out of the body. So I guess the key thing here, and I think the key takeaway from my perspective is that you cannot work out how much sodium you can replace or you should replace during exercise without doing it at the same time as working out your fluid intake strategy in relation to your fluid losses because the two work hand in hand and the sodium is there to balance the fluid turnover and so if you don't look at the fluid turnover you you having a stab in the dark on the sodium side mm, yep um and why has there been so little research into something that is so fundamental and is such a thing that athletes do why do we not have much research in this yeah, your guess is as good as mine, Steph. Um, yeah, it's really hard to say for sure. I mean, I think one of them is probably lack of funding. Uh, there hasn't been much interest in funding research studies in this area. And I guess it's not, you know, it's not going to result in the whiz-bang new supplement or product or whatever it is. Uh, yes, there are electrolyte products around, but I guess the the most people think that they're important already. So really, what is adding research to that going to do? Uh, it might help us improve how we use those products, but it's not necessarily encouraging people to buy those products because they buy them already. Um, and so maybe that's a bit of a anti-industry conspiracy theorist in me. But you know, in some ways, if you think about it, you know, if you're uh, you're selling an electrolyte product and you're doing this research around sodium replacement, you've kind of got everything to lose and nothing to gain by doing it because you know if you do the research and show that sodium replacement is completely useless. Essentially, you've kind of scientifically debunked your own product. Or if you show it's super important, well, you're just reinforcing a belief that most athletes already have. So, yeah, again, that might be a bit conspiracy theorist, but um, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me in terms of you know the incentive or not to fund this kind of research. So there's a whole bunch of research going into you know perfecting the sweat testing process and new wearables and techniques and things like that, but very little going into you know okay. You've quantified your sodium loss. Now what? Does it actually matter? Yeah. And take-home messages for endurance and ultra-endurance athletes with sodium replacement. Yeah, well, I guess the number one take-home message is if you're not doing those kind of ultra-distance events, don't worry about it. Just season to taste. Choose your sodium based on your personal preferences in terms of taste and, and what's going to work well for you. Um, because that's really the main function that sodium is going to serve you in those cases because you're simply not going to be able to disturb your blood sodium concentration and drop it to the extent that you know you need sodium to help you know prevent that fall in blood sodium concentration if you are an ultra endurance athlete and you are going to lose a large amount of sweat and replace a large amount of water during exercise you're going to have that high water turnover so there is a risk that you can drop your blood sodium concentration and that tipping point as i said is around that 70 to 80% of fluid replacement. So if you're around that mark or over, that's pretty much the only time that that sort of quantified sodium replacement is likely to be of benefit. So if that's the case, then it's about working out what your sodium losses are and planning the replacement accordingly with those numbers I mentioned before. And finally, I guess, you know, we don't have any evidence that, you know, a sodium deficit, quote unquote, is a problem. It's all about balancing the water and the sodium. So you can't really plan to replace the sodium unless you know how you plan to replace the water during exercise as well. Awesome. Well summed up. Uh, I know this one will be a very useful one for our listeners. Uh, so what's next in terms of research for you now, now that you've completed this one? Um, what's in the pipeline? Yeah, well, obviously, I've got this five-hour sodium replacement study to finish off. And as far as I'm aware, it's the first study ever to actually personalise the sodium replacement to the individual participants in the study. So it's something that's typically advocated to do for athletes. That's why we've got all the, 
the wearables being developed to try and you know personalize all of this stuff but no one's actually done it in a research study so that'll be exciting and it also looks at what happens in the body in the hours after exercise as well so that'll be super cool once that's finished and i'm hoping that'll be published probably the first half of next year uh, the other one is i'm doing a systematic review at the moment with dr chris Irwin looking at sodium amongst other things in terms of prehydration so looking at hyperhydration trying to deliberately expand the the blood volume and the total body water pre-exercise in those situations where it's very hot and you have a very high sweat rate and it's very difficult to physically replace all the fluid to prevent dehydration so we talked a little bit about that with uh, meg ross and Sinead diver at the end of last year when we talked about sort of those cooling strategies and and you know, pre-exercise hyperhydration sort of is associated around those. I guess the, the two studies I'd really love to do, one is that sodium chloride versus sodium citrate study I mentioned before, and then the other one is to do a good um, sodium replacement and performance study because, as I said, the ones in the literature at the moment have quite a few methodological issues. I think one of the good things of doing a systematic review is you look at all the studies, you can kind of see what all the issues are and then design a study that sort of works around those issues and um, hopefully doesn't have any of those sort of methodological issues in them so you can you know get a probably a better conclusion at the end of that unfortunately there really isn't much funding for research in this area so i'm kind of stuck at the moment there's these ideas sitting there but unless i get some students and some funding unfortunately they're probably not going to happen um, unless i go out and you know crowdfund or something to to get the research off the ground I was going to say shout out to athletes or if there is a sports nutrition company that listen to our podcast um, and have heard our and are interested in this area, reach out to our because he wants to do some more research, but we just need the funding. Yep. So then going a little bit more into just learning some fun stuff about you, what's the last book that you have read don't tell me it's about hydration no it's not um <laughs> finished reading or still going which one are you which one have you finished and which one's still going the last one i finished and only finished it a couple of days ago actually was do hard things by steve magnus oh yeah yeah so people yep. might know steve he's an athletics coach yep. um so that's sort of about resilience and toughness and that kind of thing so that's that's been quite interesting and yep. I've just started um, Sapiens by Yuval uh, Noah Harari. Yep. And that's been super interesting, sort of the history of, of humanity um, and through the different ages and evolution and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I'm about probably a quarter of the way through that at the moment. Just started that the other day on Audible. So um, enjoying that one, actually. So just out of interest, how many books would you read in a year do you think that are that are well no yeah just how many books would you read in a year physical books zero <laughs> or audible I, books <laughs> or it's, it's all audible these days which is a bit sad um but you can do that while you're exercising or yeah. cooking dinner or driving to or yeah. from work so yeah that's generally where it tends to get done um yeah. probably half a dozen at the most to be honest mm -hmm. and that's a good mm. year um yeah yeah, this year it's yeah. probably been three or four so far. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. Um, and where is a holiday destination that you are yet to go? Oh, a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I guess one place I'd really like to go, well, I think I actually answered this in the last bonus round that we did with mm. me, was sort of Central Australia and the Kimberley. Yeah, okay. I'd love to go there. A friend of mine actually, his parents went up that way um, they got a four-wheel drive and the, the camper van and all that kind of stuff. And then he actually, with his wife and kids, flew up there, met them, and they flew back to his parents flew back to Melbourne, and then he drove it back um, yeah. and did the trip back himself. So um, just having a look at all the pictures I've seen pictures. coming through on social media has got me jealous and wanting to do it. <laughs> so that's that's the plan for the next family holiday, do you think? I don't think so. I don't think anyone else in my family wants to do it except for me, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to have to take a bit of arm twisting to get that over the line. Yeah. All right. It might have to happen when you're a bit older. <laughs> kids, yeah, are old. the, kids are older. Yeah, wait till mm. the kids have moved out and mm. I'll say my wife, mm. see you in three months. Yeah. Because <laughs> I don't when think she's, she's interested in going, unfortunately. <laughs> 
Uh, awesome. All right. Well, thank you very much for summing up this very confusing area. And yeah, it, it will definitely be valuable for a lot of listeners. And I know I will be referring it um, episode to the athletes that I work with. Yeah, and I think confusing is is a good word. I mean, I've spent a lot of time thinking about what is the simplest practical message that we can give from all of this. Um, and there isn't a simple practical message. It's like, well, in this situation you do this, but yeah. in this situation you do this. And, um, I mean, that reflects the complexity of human biology, I think. We're always looking for that one-sentence one answer or three-word answer to the question. And, and as we see in most of these podcast topics, there rarely, if ever, is one, and that reflects that human biology is not simple. So, of course, there's never going to be a simple answer. Yeah, and I think um, that's a good one to point out because there sometimes, you know, athletes or um, even maybe our listeners might get frustrated with us when we don't give them a clear answer. And I know on other podcasts, you know, people might say, oh, yeah, like it's this way, but unfortunately as you've just explained it's it's not actually always that clear and it needs to be taken in in context so sorry if people do get frustrated with some of our long-winded responses yeah yeah i don't think we're just kidding ourselves if we think we can take the complexity of biology and simplify it into a three-word answer mm. yeah yeah exactly right Awesome. That was that was great. Uh, next episode, Al, we're up to 48B, so a follow-on from this one, do I need electrolytes during exercise? And we are joined by? Yeah, we're joined by Martin Dukas, who is an ultra runner. Uh, he's a Dutch ultra runner, hence the name, and I'm probably completely mispronounced it, so we'll check that <laughs> with him next week. Um, but spent a lot of time living in Hong Kong which has an amazing trail running scene mm -hmm. there in Hong Kong. So we'll chat to, to Martin about that uh, when he comes on the podcast. But he then moved to Australia just in the last couple of years and actually was involved in that five-hour study that we've been talking about. And so what we're going to do is have a look, I guess, at, at his individual sort of data from that and then look at that mathematical modelling and how it applies to his data and then what answers that's going to spit out for him that he can then use in a in a race situation. Now, it hasn't been long since he did that study, so he's not been able to sort of apply that in a race scenario yet, but we can look at what his theoretical needs are based on that modelling and, and I guess what that teaches us about the model itself um, and I guess how athletes can kind of use this information for, for their own individual use. And just wrapping up, a reminder that if you do have a question you'd like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at The Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Just remember that there's more than 40 plus questions we've already answered. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome. But you might like to check out the back catalogue to see if there's something there that will be helpful to you. Most podcast apps only show you the last few episodes, so if you click back, you'll find the rest of them there. If you want to be notified every time a new episode is available, you can hit subscribe on the podcast app that you're listening to this on. And if your friends are asking about a particular nutrition um, issue for the training or racing and you've heard it on the podcast, perhaps you might like to let them know. Otherwise, we will love and leave you and see you next week. Will do. See you, everyone.